Good day to all our listeners out there, and welcome to another episode of the In Search podcast. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Reagan Swanson about the creation of independent community archives in First Nations and Inuit communities in the province of Quebec. Before we jump in, please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. With that out of the way, let's get right to it. Good day, dear listeners, and welcome back to In Search. I'm so excited today to be joined by Reagan Swanson. How are you doing today, Reagan? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. How is your uh, commute over? Um, I've never taken the streetcar this way, so it was an exciting adventure. <laughs> you know, the streetcar is one of my favorite modes of transportation in Toronto, especially when it has a dedicated track. Uh, it's not so crowded, you know, it's easier to manage, not so much like the subway. Yeah, I only experienced a streetcar for the first time when I moved to Toronto. So it was like brand new and seemed really exciting. And then I realized that sometimes they don't come at all and you're just kind of waiting. And that's a different experience. <laughs> you know what? When you put it into perspective, when I've traveled around the world, you know, sometimes buses don't come for maybe two days. Yeah, <laughs> you're just much. stuck there waiting. And so the, the TTC is pretty bad. Um even even compared to that. <laughs> um, all right. So before we begin, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself and I want to introduce uh, a little bit of your background to our listeners. You have such an impressive background. Um, so for everybody listening out there, uh, Reagan is first and foremost an archivist. Yes. And uh, she she is currently the executive director at the Archives Archives. Archives, okay. Yes. Uh, which is formerly the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives. Uh, and you guys just changed your name, right? Yeah, in 2018 slash 2019. Okay, and what prompted that decision? Oh, it was just about inclusion. Like, le gay and lesbian, lesbian and gay, it was so narrow in terms of its scope. And it was just something that should have been done like 10 years ago, but it just needed a push to actually happen. And yeah, it finally kind of got finished and brought through through the membership and finally happened. And uh, yeah, it's been great. Great. Awesome. How long did it take to change it from the that first moment until it, you guys started talking about it until it actually came through? Oh, people talked about it for a real long time before the membership actually brought it forward formally. So it the membership gave us one year to kind of complete the process, which in hindsight was way too short. But um, we were able to do our initial like surveys of the community and hear people's thoughts for a couple of months before we actually settled on a name. And then we kind of put the branding and thing to the side so that we could focus on just the name change over the year. Got it. Okay. And, and so for anyone listening out there, the reason I said it with like a qua or like a big Q is because the archives, the new name is written with the, there's the emphasis on the Q, right? And I'm assuming yeah. that's for queer. It is. There's a weird, I, know, I guess it's not weird, but there's a divide between generations and whether or not folks felt comfortable with the weird queer. And to a lot of our older volunteers and older members, queer was not something they identified with. So it was trying to balance the folks that identified as queer versus the folks that still very much saw it as a slur. Got it. Okay, awesome. Um, and then, so also though, uh, while being the ED at the archives, you're also doing your PhD, you're a PhD candidate um, near completion, right? Yeah, I have about a year 
and a million like revisions left until that's finished. Ah, the PhD life. Yes. Um, So that's at the University of Dundee and you are in the Department of Archives and Record Management. Yes. Perfect. And on top of that, you're also uh, the co-chair for the special interest section on um, Indigenous Archives for the Association of Canadian Archivists. Mm -hmm. Great. Tell us about your experience there. So when I was started to work in indi- focusing on indigenous records when I worked for the Truth and Reconciliation of Canada. We really uh, wanted to kind of make sure that I was getting to know a lot of the other folks that were working in indigenous records. So because I had been a student who participated in ACA, which is the Association of Canadian Archivists, I knew that there was a group and that I could probably find out more about what was going on if I joined in. And it took a couple years before I ended up as co-chair, but uh, it's really just an opportunity for folks that work in colonial records, but also in indigenous records, keeping more directly Mm -hmm. to be able to talk about what's going on in the profession. Got it. Okay. Um, And so you were working for the TRC task force beforehand then? Um, So I worked for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. And then uh, when that contract was over, uh, I was asked to join the Truth and Reconciliation Task Force, which was in response to call to action number 70, which is where they discuss archival records in terms of uh, reconciliation. Got it. And and what's your experience both with the TRC and on the task force right now? Um, my time at the TRC was very complicated. It was a lot, a lot of work. Um, we were housed in Winnipeg and we traveled across the country. I went from BC right to Halifax doing interviews, basically collecting statements from survivors, uh, from intergenerational survivors, from former teachers, from clergy. It was a real mix, occasionally from the general public. And we were really focusing on what the experience was and trying to make sure that those records were going to be kept safe for the next generations. So it was a very, very difficult job to do, but it was nothing that um, I would ever not do again because it was just such a life-changing experience. Um, With the task force now, it's more practical trying to figure out how we're going to actively respond to the call to action and what the archival community actually needs to do rather than just talk about it. What are the steps that need to go in place to make sure that record keepers and um, folks that work with colonial records are making sure that access is available to Indigenous communities. That's fantastic. I mean, first of all, regarding the TRC, it, it, it's it's it, it's great to, to be part of something so monumental and urgent and important in the Canadian context. And then, but then also just so difficult, right? How many of these interviews were you doing? Um, it depended. I I wasn't the one conducting the interviews one-on-one. 
I was teaching folks how to do interviews. I was explaining paperwork. Uh, we were sometimes doing a couple hundred interviews in a month. Sometimes when we had special events, we would basically do interviews from eight in the morning to eight at night for four days straight. And you could get any number of statements. Um, there was one-on-one -on -one statements, but there was also larger panels that were open to the public. And then you got all the like political figures that were came in and did their speeches too. So it was a little bit of a mix of I guess it was a very big mix of a lot of different people talking and lots of different experiences. So some interviews were five minutes while some interviews were literally three days long. So I would say, you know, a, a project like that would require the flexibility of having, you know, first of all, multiple people in different positions of um, power, um, whether it be somebody who has more of a voice to be able to speak politically to the atrocities or, um, you know, down to the people who were directly affected and the people who might not have had as much of a voice, right? And maybe somebody only wants to talk about it for five minutes and maybe somebody wants to talk about it for three hours, right? So yeah. And it was a really big mix of whether or not folks wanted to talk specifically about their experience or in some cases more broadly or wanted to focus on what happened when they got home or before they left school for school versus what actually happened at school. Because it's not necessarily just what happened at the school, but also what life they were kind of removed from and what life they experienced versus the life they expected before they went to school. Wow. I mean, I would love to have you back just to talk about that research because, you know, I have so many questions. I have so many ethical questions, you know. There were many, many lawyers involved at the TRC. Not surprising at all. Okay. So, you know, you're doing all this and it's, and on the one hand, I want to ask you, how is it that you're juggling all this? But at the same time, it's, it fits into the research that we're, we're going to discuss today. Um, so why don't we jump into that? So as everybody knows here, uh, who are, who's been tuning into the podcast, uh, we generally start with the bigger question of what your research is about, right? So if you could tell us a little bit about that. So I guess I have to go back a little bit because the reason I'm doing it to begin with was is because there is this missing gap. So when I went to work in Indigenous archives after the TRC, there was not a single case study that looked at Indigenous community archives. And when I say community archives, I mean a community focused project that is created by the community for the community. So not something that's run out of an institution like a museum or the government funded or even something um, out of a university, it's something that is really truly community owned operated. And there was plenty of examples that existed. So my research is looking at one of those archives. It's looking at Avitec Cultural Institute, which is in Montreal. It is the Quebec Inuit Archive and Cultural Center. And it's a couple of different parts. The first part is doing the actual case study, how the organization was formed, what steps kind of were in place, how was it funded, what kind of projects did they focus on. But then it goes more specific to what kind of collections they actually have. Um, this 
paper, this thesis of mine won't exactly critique those collections because I firmly believe that no community should have to justify its collections to anybody outside of that community. What they choose to collect is up to them. So as a white cis settler woman, I'm not going to go in and go, well, you know, these collections, you could be doing this or you could be doing that. What I'm doing is looking at what they've chosen to collect and how they're using it. And then from there, I'm looking at two different examples. So one, how photographs are used as one of the main tools. And the secondly, how academic collections are used. So all of this is kind of looking at how community archives operate, how they are using their collections to construct a cultural identity, but also how the communities are using these records in different ways and what is the purpose behind them? Why did they choose something that is very, at its core, very Western and fairly colonial as a way to preserve their identity, which is very much not colonial. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And so, um, so let's dissect this a little bit. Yeah. So, so you're, you're only looking at Avatak or are you Mm -hmm. also uh, looking at another organization as well? So because of the close relationship between Avatak, which is the Quebec Inuit and also the Quebec Cree, which are the East James Bay Cree. I'll also be talking about collections that exist at Anstronomuk Cree Cultural Institute, or ACCI. But in the paper, I'm really focusing on Avatek for the case study and then using the two inst- institutions to kind of talk about the way things are collected. Now, the reason I have to kind of reference the two, even though I'm focusing on Avatak, is that both are were created because of the first modern treaty that was signed in 1975. So the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement was a huge undertaking um, that impacted the Cree and the Inuit all along the eastern shore of the James Bay. And because of that, and because of the money, and because of the autonomy that that treaty created, um, I'm focusing on Avatak because it's the oldest of the institutions, but also because it's just a great example, and they were willing to let um, a random person who, you know, is doesn't have any direct ties to the community come in and re- research with them and work with them. Okay, great. And we'll talk more about access. Also, I really want to get into the nitty gritty of methodology, especially with working with vulnerable populations. Um, It's really important. And I think that it should be addressed to the public, right? Um, So I guess if your focus is on Avatech, we'll talk more about that. But is there anything that you would like to tell us about ACCI before we move on to Avatech? Yeah, so the ACCI is actually where I used to work. So I worked there for two and a half years, and I was the archivist there that actually set up the archival program. So I was hired to work with the collections, which mostly focused on collections by anthropologists and um, non-community members who had lived or worked in the community for quite a while. So settler or colonial collections that were going to be used to inform 
kind of community identity or enhance some of the material that was already there. So this is something that's done in different ways with by different archives, especially with indigenous ones. But uh, my time at ACCI kind of brought me into the world of what happened after the treaty was signed and what it could look like for community to have the ability to create their own museum. And it is an astounding building and they have amazing collections there that are library, uh, artifact, and, um, and archival. Fantastic. Okay, great. So tell us about Avatech then. Avatech was created in 1983, and it was actually mandated by the elders of the Inuit communities there. So in 1975, the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement was signed, and that was signed by the province of Quebec, Hydro-Quebec, Canadian government, as well as the Cree and the Inuit. And it was about the land. So they were planning to create a hydro project that would flood the the territory of both the Cree and Inuit. Um, The size of the community or the size of the flooding or the land that would be engulfed was roughly the size of France. So, you know, it's a good chunk of land. There was going to be communities that were put underwater. There was going to be tons of trap lines and hunting grounds that were going to be just gone. Um, And a lot of the rivers were going to be impacted as well. So the Quebec government tried to sneak this in and do it all um, without really letting anybody know. It was kind of announced right at the end of the October crisis like technically they were still under war measures act or what it was whatever they formally called it and the cree talk about hearing about it on the radio like being listening to cbc or whatever it was and hearing about this project that was on their land and we're not talking about reserves or anything here this was unceded territory this that was being developed um, and while there had been developed before 1975, there, it wasn't any major scale. You know, in 1975, there was still a very healthy population that lived entirely off the land that did not or did not do very much in terms of commerce and working employment. Uh, these were folks that, you know, some had been impacted by residential school, others had not. But there was still a very healthy indigenous lifestyle that was taking place. And suddenly their land was gone or was going to be gone. So what happened was the Cree and the Inuit started to organize. And it's interesting because they probably were able to do a lot of this because they went to residential school and understood the systems that were, you know, currently oppressing them. And... um, It was probably one of many factors of kind of this sudden burst of European involvement in the area, which had started about the 1950s, Um, about the same time that the federal government started really ramping up the residential schools in some of these northern regions. And uh, the project was going to create thousands of jobs, which is what, you know, the premier had promised and um, it 
was going to devastate the lives of the Korea and the Inuit and both traditionally, but also just in terms of like being able to feed themselves and being able to live in communities. After much negotiation, injunctions and such, a treaty was signed and it was agreed on in the mid 70s. So it was something that took a lot of work, a lot of court time was spent making the case that these communities were still living off the land and still worked and lived off the land in a way that, you know, most people assumed had died away. And they used anthropologists to come onto the stand who had been doing interviews in the 1950s and 60s to make the case that, you know, is this isn't just us saying that we still live off the land, but, you know, even the anthropologists who are coming from the Canadian Museum of Man are saying the same thing. And the injunction and the trials took a huge amount of time and a lot of work by community members, but they kind of, they won to a certain extent. They were able to sign an agreement that would allow them to be able to take control of some of the natural resources in their area. Some of the flooding uh, that was going to take place was kind of discussed and they were able to move grave sites and in some cases move communities. So in some ways they won because of this treaty, which was unprecedented and was considered the first modern treaty. But still, there was a huge impact to the community in ways that nobody expected, like mercury content in fish, mm. you know, to the stuff that they did expect, which was like moving communities from one place to another. Wow. I, so that's kind of the treaty itself in very broad strokes. But the thing that it didn't account for was language and culture. So that wasn't explicitly discussed. And I wonder if it's because the connection to the land is so implicitly about culture and language that they saw it as one and the same. But I think it became really evident really quickly that they needed to be able to specifically have funds that would allow them to focus on language and on culture because there was funds set aside for creating school programming. So um, the Cree school board, for example, or the social services that were in place that um, both the Cree purchased airlines to make sure that the communities had access. There was a lot of development happening, but again, specifically on language and culture, nothing was written into the treaty. And because of that, the elders came together. Um, there was an elders conference, and the basic mandate for Avatac was decided there at the conference and kind of put into writing. And by the time the conference took place, they had already started work. But it was really a chance for the elders to come together and to talk about what was happening in their communities, because there are several communities um, in the region of Northern Quebec, but also to be able to say this is what we want to happen and this is what we see work and this is what we don't see work. 
And it's so interesting in the context of what you're saying about, you know, having having histories that are preserved for communities by communities. And here you see this organization from its inception being born from this void of a preservation or a mandate to preserve language and culture. Right. Yeah. And. It's funny because the library and the archive side was never a primary for focus. This was about uh, language programming. It was about doing mapping. It was about surnames and genealogy. A lot of the information that was vanishing very quickly. And because of the work, a library and archive naturally create was created out of it it was very organic it wasn't okay we're going to have an archive it's we're doing all these projects and we're accumulating all this material we need an archive right yeah Yeah, exactly okay great so 1983 is when this happens um so bring your work into this tie this into your work now so right now when there's such a focus on community archives notably indigenous archives and trying to make sure that we are acting in the spirit of reconciliation, it's very notable that there's no case studies that exist on indigenous archives. So when I arrived with the idea of doing a case study, it was more of a comparison of looking at different indigenous community archives. But it didn't take long to realize that there was more than enough material for me to just focus on one community. Um, and with an archive with such a rich history like Avatak, whose elders' conferences still go on every couple of years, where the work done by Avatak is so firmly being discussed by elders that are brought together on a regular basis to look at mandates and projects. It was a really natural fit to look at the institution and to really be able to dig into it in a really meaningful way to look at how the programming that Avatak was conducting influenced the archival records and vice versa. So it was, I'm very grateful that I was able to go into this community space and to look at their records because I am not from that community. But the story of Avatak and the successes that they've had, and they've had some great projects that have existed for years now, um, it needed to be told. And we, I was kind of given the opportunity to be that person that did that. What a wonderful opportunity. Um, so when, uh, when you're talking about all of these different projects, um, what, give us an example of the range of what the projects are. Sure. Um, there is a genealogy program that takes place. So there's been a lot of work um, done by anthropologists in the reason, in the region uh, w- with regards to genealogy, but there's still a lot of work that gets done um, in terms of keeping it up to date and going back further, going into colonial records. So some of those projects are just literally going community to community and doing up a genealogy for the entire town or the entire community. Um, the same can be said for surname projects, uh, which are looking at, well, specifically the surnames of all the community members. Another project that they did was place names. 
So looking at the place names and the traditional place names and their projects would actually inform changes that would happen at a federal level. So going to the province and going to the feds and going, look, this is the actual name of this place. We want it changed and working on making sure that those changes were made to reflect the community. And I know even in Toronto, I've seen a lot of those changes be made, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of complications, especially when you look to archival records, because when you're doing research, you need a name to start with. So a lot of these places have like three or four names. So there's the name of the region, and then there was the HBC post name, and then there's the government name, and then there's the local community name, which, you know, that became a settlement after the HBC post was put in or after there was a residential school. So there's all these different names. So when you're going through archival records, you're trying to, okay, which place name am I looking for now? How many different ways has it been spelt is also a big one, especially when referring to um, the community's traditional name or the name that it's been given um, when the settlement was created. So it can be really tricky to kind of write a paper about a community or one community in particular when you've got four or five different names that is referred to in all the primary sources. So it's it can be a little tricky. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that. What's really interesting to me or what's standing out about what you're saying so far, even even something as, you know, um, seemingly straightforward as the surname project, right, is the way that these these projects are not just standalone, but that they work with other governmental organizations um, in the sense that they're not, it's not just a, or correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like it's just projects that are, that stay within the community, but mm-hmm. that are aimed at making social changes for that community as well. Yeah. And there's different variations on that. So with the archaeology programs that they have, you know, there's been a lot of different um, folks that have lived on the Inuit land. It, and, you know, some of it dates back a good 7,000 years. So looking at the different groups that were there, um, but using community knowledge to inform the archaeology dig. So where did you normally camp when, or where did your family camp when you did these, you know, routes between where you hunted in the summer or where you were in the summer to where you hunted in the winter. So usually, you know, the archaeologists are kind of going in off of like historical information, but they go in alone. In a lot of these communities, it's actually community informed or they're training community members to be the next generation of archaeologists that work in that region. You know, the, the resilience of indigenous communities never ceases to amaze me, right? Is that despite all of these colonial practices, there are these these very, um, like I said, resilient efforts from whether it be elders or other community members to organize and put an end to the way that colonialists have been doing, have been colonizing. Yeah, and you have to remember that with the Inuit in Quebec in particular, the federal government didn't ramp up residential schools until 1950 in that region. 
So there's still plenty of people that remember living exclusively off the land. This isn't quite like we we have communities near major cities and closer down south where the impact has been around for a much longer time. Like if you're talking about when settlers started coming in and building settlements themselves, like a lot of it was down south. And to actually have the impact up north, like a lot of it didn't happen until the 1950s. And so you're looking at a much tighter time frame for what, like, for how the colonial practices kind of took place and how quickly that change happened for them. So if there was community members living off the land in the 1970s, you know, that's not long ago. That's like within our lifetime. So it's a big change to have happened in a very short amount of time. And it also makes for these very rich oral histories, right, that, you know, can be very difficult to, to talk about or to hear or, you know, it, it could be a lot to listen to, um, you know, these very vivid and very recent memories or oral histories, but it's important to preserve them nonetheless, right? So Yeah, and most of the oral histories, I think it's most of the oral histories that are done for the various programming at Avatac are mostly done by community members or people that were hired by Avatac. So some of their early grants were really um, more economically based. So um, hiring folks, giving them employment, giving them here, go interview about this topic in this community. And so those oral histories exist, you know, from the 1980s. Well, that's exactly what I mean, right? Here we go again, this idea of the the number one mandate being to preserve these histories, but at the same time, um, you know, employing people, giving people jobs, um, also informing other people. And so it's just, it's just the resourcefulness is just amazing. Yeah. One of the first big projects was an Inuit history project. So looking at represent how they were represented in the history books, which of course was minimally, if at all, and being able to have their own history of what it what the process of colonization was like to a certain extent, but also more importantly, what their lives were like before all of this happened. And so some of the projects that I focus on in later chapters of my thesis are those projects that happened while doing the research for the Inuit history project. And so what resources they used and had access to to be able to start doing the research to write that kind of material and there's been some amazing books that have been published by toby morans in collaboration with avatac because they also had a publishing and have a publishing side of it um and so there's two books in particular that toby morans did that mix both oral culture and history from the inuit alongside the HBC records and the government records to really form a complete look of that region. Great. Okay, so we've talked about the genealogy program. We've talked about the surnames. We've talked about um, the Inuit history project just now, the oral histories, the archaeology program. Any other notable ones that you want to draw our attention to? Um, The biggest one for me has always been the Inuit history project because it had such a fundamental impact on the creation of both the archives, but also the types of collections that they would go on to collect. 
So I'd have to say that it's both my favorite and to me the most interesting, which is probably why it's my favorite. Um, but there's some amazing programs that go on in terms of cultural, just everything cultural uh, at Avitech, including their museum collection that they have, because they do have a vast museum collection, uh, to the programming that they do kind of all over the world, because interest in the Inuit is, of course, not just a Canadian issue. It's a issue for most countries that have, you know, geography around the Arctic. So there's a lot of different uh, research that's done in many different countries about Inuit populations. So it's really quite something. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the uh, Inuit History history Project? You could tell I wanted to talk about it more. <laughs> I did. I definitely did. Yeah. But I, but I also want to hear about it. So. so one of the first things that the project did was to go look in colonial archives to see what kind of records existed about themselves. And this is something that a lot of communities kind of start off with. It's something to how are we represented right now and what does that look like? So in a lot of cases, this was photographs and in other cases, it was HBC records. Um, the HBC archive is in Manitoba, but of course contains records from across Canada and of course from London. There was government records, so residential school records, but also health records. So of course, the Arctic still has a huge TB problem. There's tons of medical records in the government that relate to Inuit communities, um, both of health services there, but also of members of the community that have been flown down for care or something approximating care in the South. So those were two major ones, but there was also church records because, of course, the missionaries were always there to do what they did. And so it's a big mix of museums, government, churches, and later universities um, that they went into. And it was a whole range of things. It was photographs from inside hospitals to photographs of folks out on the land. The anthropology program at the Canadian Museum for History or whatever it was called in the various years, in the 1960s was really strong. And they sent out anthropologists across Canada to work with Indigenous communities. So the amount of material about Indigenous communities in museums is really high from that 1960s and 70s period. So it was a real mix of both government-focused records relating to services that were provided and then a mix of anthropological records that was looking at how the communities were when the anthropologists found them. And then another group, which was the church records. So in those cases, sometimes it was uh, residential school records, but in other cases, it was religious baptisms or and, um, marriage registries and things like that. I think when it started, it was about finding out what information was there and accumulating it into one spot. 
So digitization wasn't what it is now. And so researchers would go into these archives and make copies and bring them back. So this would be one place that community members could go to find information from archives literally from around the world. So it was accumulation with the purpose of access. Okay. But then they put a good twist on it. And that is they started redescribing these records, notably the photographs. Ah. So oh, wow, the photographs. Yes. Okay. So uh, in one case, I can think there is a photograph that I'm using in my thesis. It's a photograph from an Anglican church um, record from the Arctic Diocese. It is two young boys on a motorcycle. And the caption basically reads, modern transportation in today's north. Um, And then it has the anglicized versions of the two boys' names. So what happened was Avitak brought that picture in. um, And they kept all of the information that a researcher would need to be able to find it from its original source. So the title, the scoping content, as we call it in archival collections, the dates, the reference numbers for actually accessing the collection in its original form. They keep all of that information, and then they add their own description to it. So they give it its own reference number for where it can be found in their collection, and they re-describe the photo. And they did this over and over again for the thousands of photographs that they brought back. That's so powerful. You know, it is, that is probably the first time that I've heard at such an institutional level history being rewritten like that. You know, there's oral histories, there is, you know, there is um, more informal ways of rewriting history that I've certainly been made aware of, but I've never heard of an organization actually collecting archival data and then correcting it in this like decolonial way. Some cases it's not necessarily correcting it but rather looking at it from a different lens so in one case it's like this is the building but the community interpretation of it is this is this building that was built by and adding that context that gives it so much more so in some cases it's just pictures of the landscape But the way that you or I describe it as an outsider is not going to be the same language that a community member uses. So some cases it is correcting, but in other cases it's enhancing the description. So using what they have and then adding a descriptor to it. Right. Contextualizing it. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. So interesting. Okay. So let's talk about your main argument and your thesis. So what, so what is it, if you could sum it up, you don't have to, we could, we could make it more long-winded too, um, but if, if you would like to, how would you sum up the main arguments of your research? What have you found? Um, what have I found? So I've got my three big arguments that I'm making. One, the Canadian archival system is inherently racist. That's not a stretch. Like, if we're talking about, like, what the situation has been versus, you know, what the situation is now, the profession, just like libraries and museums, is inherently white and inherently cis, and that is a larger problem overall. 
but it informs the next ones, which is that since there's been no case study, Avatac is a really good example. And by using Avatac to kind of give a description of what has happened, we're able to look at how this could benefit other communities that are in the exact same position, other they're signing treaties or they are working to develop cultural centers that are in similar in nature. But because we've siloed everything so very much, the information about what's happening in these communities isn't getting out. And because the system is inherently racist, folks aren't writing about it. And the people that are on the ground doing the work don't have time to write about it and might not feel welcome in the institutions that we've created through higher education. So getting into an A-plus journal you know, is not an easy feat. So if you're a community member doing this work, how do you make what you're doing known to the rest of the world? So there's projects that Avatac did in the 1980s and 1990s that were then duplicated by the federal government 10 years later. And because nobody knew the other project existed, they repeated the same errors. It's remaking the wheel every single time. So my hope is that in looking at this, that we're able to say, here's an example of what has worked. Here are some other places that exist. You're not alone in this and that you can actually find out what worked and what didn't based on some of the troubles that they had and some of their successes as well. Okay, and your third argument? Third argument is that for... Canadians, settler Canadians, to really move forward in reconciliation that anthropologists and other academics who study and work with Indigenous communities should be placing their archival collections with Indigenous archives. So making sure that the community has access to their own information because colonial tools have broken them off from most access to their own history. So if we're really acting and moving forward into reconciliation is that academics, anthropologists especially, need to think about where they're depositing their records and what that means to the community. Is the place you're depositing your records going to be a place that welcomes community members because this might be one of the major collections that exists about their life, their tradition. And if they don't have access to it, then you've just used the community in a really horrible way because you've dropped in, you've done the work, you've left, and you've left them with nothing. Okay. Yeah. So I want to I wanna break each of those down. Okay. And... Uh, just before I do, I want to ask you, so are, is this how your chapters then would be divided? So my chapters are divided a little bit differently. So I talk about, I have to give context to Quebec and to the more broader like political and social sphere that all of this happened in because like many community archivists, it's communities um, and their work through activism that bring about the creation of community archives. 
And then I focus on Avitex specifically. And then I focus on photographs as an example of how they use the collections. And then finally, talking about anthropologists and give examples of anthropological collections that have had major impacts in both Cree and Inuit communities. Okay, great. Um, okay, so having laid that out, we will contextualize Quebec, but we'll let's do yeah. that in the methodology. Yeah. Um, but for now, I want to go back to your three arguments and dissect them more. So um, the Canadian archival system is inherently racist. Uh, so tell us more about this. There's always been a huge problem with how white the information systems have been, especially in Canada and the U.S. There is a bazillion articles written about it, probably not that actually that many, but there's a lot of amazing work that's been done looking at how diversity and, um, well, diversity and inclusion happens in the profession and how it impacts collections. So when you look at the system now, right we're at a tipping point. I think when you go to conferences, you look around, it's mostly white, white cis women that work in archives. Um, but we're still at a point where a lot of the bosses are the men, right? So, you know, there's also layers of misogyny and everything that come into it. But, you know, this is a very white cis organization. And, you know, when community members become involved in museums and libraries, usually they're focused very much on their community and not necessarily about attending the conferences and being, well, in some cases, they just can't afford to. I can barely afford to go to the professional conferences that exist now. And Tell me about it. Yeah. So that's another problem. Um, but the system is built on the fact that archives were created to collect government records. If the system was built to collect government records, then it's one of those instances where it's doing exactly what it was supposed to. It's not broken. It is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It collects government records. What it doesn't collect is anything revolving context or anything like that. So in my professional life, looking at queer and trans material, you see that the records of the government are police records. You see that they are records about arrests and going to trial. You don't see the community itself. You only see the reaction to the community. So when you collect from a community perspective, you're collecting the actual history of the organization rather than the government's response to it. So when it comes to indigenous records, the records are those of treaties. Um, they're the records of residential schools, of government services, but they're rarely about the communities themselves. So if the system was created to collect government records, and then it was used in churches and academic institutions. These aren't bodies that are known for being super inclusive and open to diverse people coming in. They are colonial and white supremacists to their core. And so it's not surprising that this is a problem. We've basically created a 
academic situation where most of our professors in the archives schools and the library schools are white women and how do you bring in other organizations when or other people when they don't see themselves reflected in the people that they see in those organizations yeah and that the systemic kind of structural barriers that are created by virtue of that lack of representation then creates this impossible referent where you can't you you don't have the language to be able to talk about your own history in the way that you would like because of the anthropological discipline or the historical discipline and the way that disciplines I mean so Edward Said talked about this a lot in Orientalism and in the context of you know the quote-unquote Orient right that this geographically and culturally places and histories are created that lock in these um, false histories about people and then they create this impossibility of being able to get outside of those histories because the reference are so strong and and backed up by disciplines right yeah and then you throw some Anderson in there and you've got imagined communities right so how are communities formed and the contrast between what is seen from a government perspective versus the community perspective. So which communities are being represented in the records? Which communities are being represented in the people who work with those records and who are teaching the next generation? And so you're trapped in this cycle of here's who we're going to put in these positions because archives and archivists are in a huge huge position of power. We literally decide what gets kept for the next generation to see. And while there's been a lot written on what that relationship between the archivist and the records is, you know, I think it's fair to say that everybody is coming to it if everybody is coming to it with the same perspective, then we're just going to be collecting the same records. And if the voices that are from other communities aren't there when it comes to collecting, then you are just flat out missing everything else. Right, right, exactly. Um, okay, so your second argument, and I'll you can again correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but your second argument as I hear you saying it is that Avatech serves as a case study. It serves as a case study for how community archives can be uh, or powerfully collected and what has gone wrong otherwise or in other cases. Is that correct? Um, maybe not so much the what has gone wrong in other places. Really trying to focus on how they were able to form the institution and what the main challenges were. And it's not a stretch to just be able to say, like, the challenges were money. Like, it's the same for any community archive. Community archives are not funded by anybody other than the community. That is their inherent nature. So how did Avatac survive without having specific funding laid out in the modern treaty, which is the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement? So without specific funding put aside, how were they still able to do this kind of programming? How was their archival collection able to grow and the development of the collections more broadly able to exist in an environment where you're always struggling for money, always? 
and you're existing within a environment where you know you have a ridiculously high TB rate and you also are trying to deal with clean water and proper housing and overcrowding. So trying to situate it a bit in terms of the indigenous experience and how they're able to balance the different elements because sometimes it's hard to convince people to look to library and archives when they're fighting for clean water or to find housing that will be able to fit their entire family. So balancing the like practical nature of what is being done now by the activists, but also looking to the next kind of round, which is how we're collecting that work that's being done by those community members. So what are you finding? What's, what is it about Avatech then that has, ha, that has given them you know, this, um, their success? So a lot of it actually comes back to the Northern Quebec Agreement. So the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement gave money to each organization, so to both the Cree and to the Inuit. And this was given through the Cree Regional Authority or Cree Regional Government and Makovic, who was responsible for the distribution of these funds. So because the money that came from this agreement, that came from the Hydro-Quebec and from the development of the natural resources, was being put back into the community, and the community decided where that money was going, so they're able to use the money to build a system that allows for all the things to take place at once. So they're able to build an education system, social services, but at the same time invest in language and culture through Avatar. Okay, great. So moving on then to your third argument. So I'm going to try to reiterate again. So your third argument then is a call to action, which is cautionary to other researchers, anthropologists, you named, um, uh, but other researchers who are doing work with Indigenous communities and archival work to be ethical about the way that they handle the materials that they're working with, right? So um, mainly you're arguing that the communities with whom you are doing research need to be involved in the decision-making process of what happens to the final product of your work, correct? Correct. And in some cases, there's already archives in those communities that is ready to take on archival collections. If there's not, then where are those collections going to go? And where are they going to be accessible? Because a lot of times, researchers don't do their research near where they actually teach or do, you know, are involved with faculty. So in the case... One of the cases that I give, um, there is someone from Hamilton that did work in the Cree region of Quebec, which, you know, is a good eight-hour drive north of Ottawa or Montreal. You know, if he had deposited his records in Hamilton, how would any of the community had access to them? And there's a series of imperfect events that happened where, you know, the university wasn't interested at the time because it was the early 90s and Indigenous records weren't important, so they weren't a part of the mandate to collect. It's also because he produced an astonishing amount of documentation. So, you know, eventually, you know, 
because of where it ended up, it ended up going to a community. But, you know, it wasn't the first place that he necessarily thought of putting the collection. But there's a lot of factors that go into it, like who's interested in actually taking the collection? Who has the financial capability of taking the collection? There's a lot of collections that I get offered that I actually have to say no to because we don't have the space or the resources to actually process them and make them available. And so if the collection doesn't come with actual money to help support it, then sometimes you have to say no to it. And in this case, because other archives said no, it ended up in the community where it should have been in the first place. And that was one of the factors why they were comfortable depositing the material in the community was because it was important for them to have access to it because there was a lot of community members that he had worked with that he wanted to make sure that they were acknowledged as co-creators. And that's something that he was able to do by placing them in an indigenous archive. And are you finding in this, you know, through this argument that you're making, are you also bringing in examples where, you know, um, communities have not had access to their archives? A little bit. What I'm trying to focus on is giving two examples of where it's worked or kind of worked. Um, mostly as guiding posts to kind of figure out where that line is. So in one example, an anthropologist donated his entire collection to an indigenous archive. There's some exceptions because he had done contracts with the Canadian Museum of History in the 1970s and 80s, and part of the contracts meant that the reports and the research that he collected went to their archive. So besides that, you know, everything went to the community. But I talk about another researcher whose university um, laid first claim to the records, but he's giving copies of everything to the Indigenous archives so that they have access to it. Right. And so, you know, I guess the commentary there also brings in the responsibility of institutions, research institutions, to think more critically about the rights that they take when, you know, it's one thing to say that when you publish with our university, when you're a graduate student at our university and you're doing research, we lay claim to your research. That's one thing. But another thing is to think about the communities that are being impacted. And especially when we're talking about indigenous communities, given all of the, you know, very violent uh, colonial context, um, you would say um, it, it is a right of indigenous people to have access to their own records and histories. Yeah, and it's something that we see a lot in archives that the people who donate the material don't always think about the third party. So the restrictions that they might put on it are going to be very different than the people who are reflected in the research or reflected in the documentation than that they would want put on it. So sometimes it's about access and who has access to the collections. And in this case, by donating it to an Indigenous archive, it gives the decision-making process about who has the right to this knowledge to the communities, and they can make that decision rather than having a third or fourth party removed make the decision about who's going to have access to the material. And that's hard for a lot of archivists because we 
are taught that there's three main things you collect, you preserve, and you make accessible. So to think about putting something in a collection where it might not be accessible to outside researchers ever is difficult for a lot of people. And as a researcher and as an archivist, it's it kind of, I can't, it's something that I've struggled with wrapping my head around. But at the same time, I fully acknowledge that that's coming from a place of privilege and that I'm not one who's routinely studied by anthropologists and put on display. So I, I have to kind of come to terms with my own uneasiness on that and just reflect that, you know, the communities are those that are the been the most marginalized by these community by the academic community and we need to make sure that we're putting them in a position where they can make those decisions for themselves because we've always taken those decisions away previously well and I, and I, you know i think again like it comes back to this question of ethics right so when you read uh any ethics mandate at the center of it is the imperative to produce knowledge. Yeah. Right. For social change, for accessibility, this emphasis on knowledge production, while very important, often doesn't look into the harm that is done to the communities about whom the research is being produced. Right. So for me as a researcher and in my own research, one of the things that I've really thought about is the idea of not doing research, right? Or pulling back or what I've what I call disengagement, right? So disengaging with research as being productive. And what does that mean, right? What does that mean in the ethical context, right? And so in the in what you're saying, it means that sometimes you make those um, archives not accessible to the general public, but more immediately accessible to the communities about whom they're written. Yeah. And some of it's geographic, but some of it is just frankly, well, this is our community knowledge and we have the right to our own, you know, the copyright over our culture. And so you look into the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights and how, you know, the right to culture and the right to not be studied and how all of that impacts, it impacts archives in a huge way. And so rethinking all of that is something that's it's going to challenge a lot of people and it's going to be really difficult for a lot of archivists who are classically trained, if you will, through the Canadian archival system to wrap their head around that one. Yeah. yeah. And I fully acknowledge that sometimes it it's hard for me as well. Right. Right. And it's because of that imperative to produce. Right. So it's like, yeah. how do we remove ourselves from that it's almost like a hubris right so how do we remove ourselves from that and think and re and think more critically about the positionality question right yeah okay great all right so um so i think we have a good kind of lay of of the the thesis overall but i want to go more into the methodologies mm -hmm. now right so first i want to ask you to contextualize quebec for us so why did you choose to do quebec um uh, why not other provinces um and why um uh, and just tell us more about the context of quebec so in a really random way it is because there's archival schools in other provinces 
So BC has a really strong archival program and they have partnerships with some of the indigenous institutions like within the universities. So some of the great work that's been done um, by Kim Lawson comes out of UBC and it's already been written about. So I didn't want to look to BC. It's a very different type of indigenous community than, say, the North or the communities that I've worked more with. Um, the same thing can be said about Manitoba. Again, archival program there. Lots of interest in the Hudson's Bay Company records. And that's been written about quite extensively. And they were just starting to put together the educational research archive that is in place now um, when I started doing my research. So it was a little bit because BC has been written about, but Quebec's kind of been sitting there for a while without being touched. It was partly because I worked in Quebec and was more familiar with the region. And... Um, and a lot of it was because Avitech was such a strong example of what could happen if a community invested in language and culture and how that archival systems could grow organically through the programming that they did. So the reason that Avitech is was made possible was because of the first modern treaty, which was 1975, the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement. So in some ways, it's Quebec because that's where that agreement was signed. And everything that came after it is... Everything that came after it was because that agreement was signed and everything that was made possible or impossible was because that agreement was signed. So it just set a really concrete kind of time frame for how the language and culture of this community kind of evolved and the impact of colonialism. Um, when you talk about community archives, we talk about trigger points a lot. There's usually something that tips the community over the edge and forces their hand into creating an archival representation of their culture. Um, you could make the argument that colonialism overall was that tipping moment, but you know, in this case, in Quebec, you can really look to 1975 and that signing as the moment where things changed and there's a divide before what happened before that and what happened after. Right, right, okay. So I wanna move the methodological question a little bit to access. Yeah. Was it relatively easy for you to gain access because of your previous uh, work with um, ACCI? Um, in some cases, yes. Um, because I had relationships with other archivists and because I had worked in the field, they knew who I was. Um, but, you know, that didn't mean that it was an automatic. It meant that I still wrote the letters, I gave my references, I said, here's my project. I met in person and said, here's what I would like to do. And then I talked with them for a couple of hours. I sent them my questions. And then Avatak was like, okay, yeah, we'll work with you. And here's what we'll kind of give you access to. And here's what you won't have access to. And because I knew that I wasn't going to be talking about community-created collections as much, I was going to be focusing on how outsiders contributed 
to that narrative, it was a little bit easier. So I, but I still had to petition, um, in some cases, the donors of the collection to have access to them and to be able to look at them or even, you know, in some cases look at them, but not cite them directly. So it was a complicated process of figuring out what collections I would have access to and which collections I wouldn't. Okay. Okay. And so you didn't then, because it was, because I guess you had already been so reflexive about the process, you didn't really get much pushback? Um, not from Avatac, no. Um, they definitely thought about it, and they realized that nobody had written a history of Avatac before, and I think they saw the value in doing that. Um, a lot of people see it very much for some of the other aspects, including the museum and the archaeology and the language programs but nobody had paid attention to the archive in this way. So I think because I was appealing to them from that kind of point of view, it allowed them to be able to make a decision on, you know, do they want people to talk about what they've been doing and to understand it? And in this case, it was yes. Okay, great. Fair enough. Um, I want to ask you, so I'm going to just make the assumption that the majority of the listeners are not archivists. Um, So tell us about the process of doing archival research, right? So as a methodology, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? I think I approach it from a different point of view because I'm looking at the records of kind of from both a professional but also research point of view. So I'm considering, you know, a lot of the different elements that one would consider when you're acquiring the documents as as well as the actual contents of them. So when I was doing research, what I was focusing on was who were these people, not necessarily who were, what were their documents, but who they were. Were they professors? Were they anthropologists? Were they, in one case, a nurse from the community who lived there for dozens of years? who the people themselves were, because that is going to be a reflection of what they collected and how they were able to collect. How they saw the community is directly related to how the community accepted or did not accept them. So some of the pictures involved, you know, a lot of photographs of community events, which meant that they were welcomed into the community or invited to those events. And that says something about them and their experience, as well as, you know, speaks to the records themselves and how they were created. So I was doing two things when I looked at the records. I was looking at how the community member contributed, but also how they documented their time in the community. And so it was a little bit of doing both, looking at how the they describe the records because often photographs would come with captions. Uh, it was looking at how Avatac described the relationship between the person, the donor, and the collection. So you had descriptions? Yeah. Okay. So what, what did that look like? Was it like um, on each file there was a description or how did that? Yeah. So in archival there's a couple of different ways to arrange and describe a collection. We don't use the term cataloging very often when we're talking about doing the description of the records. But when you get the records in, you do inventories and you arrange them in such a way that you can find the individual files. Um, 
one of the things that you tend to do is to do a scope and content note. So that is what is going, what are you as a researcher going to file or find inside this file? So whenever possible, there would be a description of the phone or the collection overall, but then there would also be descriptions about the different series within that and kind of down the hierarchical tree of what was available and what was not. So one of the things I was looking at specifically was how Avatac was also describing the records. So they had been brought in and then an archivist had done descriptions to help researchers be able to figure out what was in the individual files. And these descriptions were sometimes in English and sometimes in French, depending on who the archivist was or who the donor was. Um, but Avatac's system actually allows for English, French, and Anuktuk descriptions to happen simultaneously. But as anyone can tell you, translation is very expensive, so it wasn't necessarily available in all three languages all the time. Okay. Um, okay, I want to ask you a little bit more of like a technical question of doing archival research. So describe to us what a day at the archives would look like for you. So in my case, I was given access to a list of what collections were available. So what I did was I reviewed them and I looked to see the way that Avatac had organized them. So a lot of organizations, including my own here in Toronto, we just do a random number series to like assign numbers to them. But in Avatac, they had actually kind of divided them up between community and non-community members. And researchers had their own little kind of section. So I was able to kind of look at what kind of collections were being collected from the community specifically versus what was coming in from members of the general public that had either lived or worked in the area. So in those cases, I was able to kind of look to see who was donating records. And I focused in this case on folks from outside the community. So looking at researchers, who was represented, um, lots of anthropologists, lots of nurses, lots of priests, lots of folks from the church in general who had donated records. And then from there, it was looking at the physical description. So in each collection, there'll be a description of what is in the collection and what isn't. In a lot of cases, it will be, this contains like five centimeters of documents and 100 pictures. So you're able to get an idea of how much is actually in each collection. And then from there, you can go further, further down to be like, okay, do you have any collections that have photographs? Do you have any collections that deal with community and culture? Do you have any collections that deal with you know, relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous community members. And from there, I was able to kind of do a review of who was there and who wasn't, and then decide who I was going to talk about and who I wasn't going to talk about. And some of that is access related, because there were some people that I had access to their collections and some folks that I didn't. So it was balancing who do I have access to and balancing which collections are able to reflect this community in a really like meaningful way. Okay, great. Um, 
How long did it all take you? I don't think I'm done yet. Like I've got most of my first draft done, but I know that I need at least another trip to the archive to go and really kind of do a last review. When I went to Montreal, I got a little bit of support from my university, um, but I would basically go for three or four days. Um, it has to be during the week, so I also have to be able to take the time off of work to be able to go to Montreal. Um, there's nothing like taking time off from your archival job to go to somebody else's archive and do research. <laughs> So uh, I would go for three or four days. I would work basically as soon as the office would open, sometimes before the archivist arrived, I would be in the library working and I would work until probably about four o'clock every day. And sometimes it was just writing down names of files and whether asking like yes or no, can I have access to this? And then the archivist would respond later on. In some cases, it was just documenting what was in the files that I had access to already and just trying to get a grasp of the collection overall in a very short amount of time um, because their resources are really limited too. I didn't want to be there taking up the archivist's time nonstop. Um, she's someone that I've known for a couple of years, so I felt okay asking questions, but I also understand the demands that community archives are faced with. So I didn't want to be that researcher that required a lot of handholding. Right. I understand. Um, okay, great. So let me just think, I think, I think that's good for methodological questions. Um, let's move to the conversations, the, the literature review in a more informal sense. So what what types of broader conversations or specific conversations are you picking up on or contributing to? And what co conversations do you see as missing from the work that you're doing? So there's tons of stuff happening in community archives. Um, I've My academic heroes like Jeanette Bastian and uh, Michelle Coswell from both are actually in the U.S., and the work that they do with community archives is was very much a, kind of what drew me in and got me interested in, especially Jeanette Bastian and being introduced to her at the University of Toronto um, and the work that she's done at Simmons College and with U.S. Virgin Islands was really something that appealed to me. Again, using colonial records, documenting Indigenous populations, but there's a lot being spoken about in the U.S. and in Canada about community archives. It's no longer a question of whether or not community archives are a legitimate, legitimate form of archives. They're accepted as an archive. Um, they're run by archivists. They're run by non-archivists. They're seen as different from government records, of course, but you, know, you don't quite have to have the argument of whether or not they're a true archives or not. But what's obviously missing is the Indigenous perspective and how Indigenous archives fit into that. There's examples in other places around the world who also um, have Indigenous archives that they work with. Um, the International Council on Archives has a new Indigenous working group that has a whole bunch of different countries represented, including Canada. 
So there's a lot being done, but in the archival community in Canada, there's not a lot of conversations about the communities themselves. Folks are mostly talking about their interactions from an institutional point of view. So here is what UBC or here's what the um, Provincial Museum of British Columbia has done. And they've done amazing work. But again, it's from here's our interactions with the community rather than here's a community archival program or here's a community archives that exists and that was created and is their own experience. Right. So let's move to our final question then, which, you know, is about the practical outcomes, the desired practical outcomes of your research. And I often distinguish that term practical because and you can you can tell us if if you have other outcomes that might not necessarily be practical for your research um, and why that is but but I I think that um, at least for this podcast because it's disseminated to the public it's important to think about the outcomes that are actually realizable and tangible in the research that we do, right? And part of that effort is to demystify this idea that research just stays within itself and that, um, you know, research actually has an impact on communities and can, can lead to and can foster social change. And so that's why I ask uh, participants to tell us about what, what their work tangibly can do or what they hope that it can do. Yeah, and this was super important to me when I started out. So I left my master's having master's in information and went out into the workforce and worked for five years, almost five years before I went back to school because I was annoyed at the distance between the theory and what I was sent out into the actual world to do as an archivist. And so when I decided that I was going to go back, it was because there was this giant hole that was there that was really annoying to me when I was trying to do the practical work. And so it was paramount that my whatever my topic was, it actually had to have some practical outcome. And so that's why I focused on a case study that would actually be a here is an example that you can use. Here is precedent. Because for some community members, it's about proving that it's actually happened and worked in other communities before. If we're not talking about our successes at a community archival level, you know, then we're all going to be struggling to get the funding because often when you're applying for funding, it's like, well, how do you know this will work? And if you don't have those examples, then you're not going to be able to get that funding. And it's something that we struggle with at the archives here in Toronto, and I know that other community archives struggle with as well. So it's an attempt to add to the discourse about what is being done at a community archives level so that there is some kind of recorded precedent that Indigenous archives that are community-led and, you know, created by by and with the vision of elders are feasible and it's something that can work. And by adding this case study, it is an opportunity for other communities to say, this has worked other places. How can this work for us as well? Absolutely. 
Um, and are you going to be doing any follow-up research or future research that's related to this? I don't know yet. Um, I There's something very exhausting about trying to explain something that isn't in the research already. Doing work that you've inherited this problem. The problem is that the system has ignored this group, this archival community for so long that, you know, nobody's written anything. And so you take it on as your project and you throw everything you can to try to correct the problems that you've inherited through your profession. And, you know, I don't know how successful it's going to be. We'll see once it's done. And I think only then will I be able to, like, take a step back and figure out what the next step will be. It's going to be in community archives, but whether it's working with queer and trans communities or working with indigenous communities again or maybe another group, that's probably going to be up in the air. Okay, Regan, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate you coming here. I wish that we could continue the conversation for hours and hours, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Thank you again for coming here. Thank you for having me. That just about does it for today's episode. Once again, we'd like to thank you for joining us on the In Search podcast. If you'd like to be on the show, please reach out to us through the link in the show notes. As always, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show, so hit us up on Twitter at Podcast InSearch or email us at InSearchPodcast at gmail.com. And because we love your feedback, please rate and review us in iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Doing so helps us reach a wider audience, share knowledge, and make our world a better place. Consider subscribing so you don't miss the next episode where we talk about the shift in job instability in Canada, Britain, and Germany. Until then, stay curious.